God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thank you so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with other people here, but we bring the service to you wherever you are. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life, the amazing things that are yours in the Word of God. Would you open in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 8. That's where we're going to be from verse 1 through verse 11. We'll also show the verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the mercy difference. Some people go through life trying to tear others down. They do this because they think that they'll look bigger once that other person is brought lower. It's always amazed me how the world seems to put a target on anyone who has a reputation for doing good. It's like that person who does the right things and the honorable things in life is perceived to be some sort of a threat to some of these other people. Those who are against God try to convince everybody that they themselves are really a pretty good person, that they're just normal, that even though they're doing really evil things in their life, it's okay because they can't help it and nobody can. That's what everybody does. So they've told themselves it's not really possible to do good and to stay away from sin. And so they don't like it when someone else aspires to live a godly life. They figure that that person is shining light in their darkness and it makes them look bad. So they set out to try to destroy that person who's trying to live a godly life. We've all heard the saying that every good deed is punished. Well, that's the way it is in the world. Now, no doubt you've noticed today what used to be bad is now considered to be good. And what was once considered good is now considered to be bad. That's because the devil is influencing so many people in their thoughts and minds and their lives. And the devil hates God and darkness hates light. And those who are of the darkness hate those who are of the light. And of course, the light is threatening to the darkness. Light and darkness are not equal. They're not equals at any stretch of the imagination. Any physicist knows that light is a real power. It's part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's real. But darkness, that's no power at all. Darkness is really the absence of light. Where light doesn't shine, darkness is present. But the light shines into the darkness and the darkness dissolves away. They're not equal no matter what people try to tell you. That gnarly old darkness is no match for the power of God's light. Light is power. Darkness is emptiness. Light is hope. Darkness is despair. When light meets darkness, light wins every time. Remember that. Light wins. All of the darkness in a room cannot extinguish the light from the smallest candle. When darkness and light meet, light wins. Now, when Jesus walked the earth, he said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The interesting thing is that 
he was about to go to the cross and go back to the Father in heaven, and he turned to his disciples and said, now you are the light of the world. See, before he said, I'm the light of the world. Now as he's leaving, he's saying, you're the light of the world. Nobody lights a candle and puts it, a cover over it, but they put it in a place where it can give light to all the people around it. So let your light shine before men, he says, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Simply this, you're a child of God. Imitate your heavenly Father. As He acts justly, you act justly. As He shows mercy, you should show mercy. As He forgives, you forgive. As we study the Bible, we see more and more clues that reveal what God's heart is like. Then as we learn what's important to Him, since we're His children, it also becomes important to us. In our passage today, we're learning how God feels about judgment and what He feels about mercy. It may surprise you to see just how merciful God is and how much He really desires to rescue a person who's in sin, to rescue a person from judgment. In our scripture today, it's going to tell us an amazing story. But remember the Matthew in chapter 9, 13 also says that Jesus said, go and see what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice because I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That's going to have some bearing on our verses today. So remember that verse in Matthew 9. That means that God prefers mercy to sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to call the people who thought they were righteous enough and didn't need a Savior. He didn't come to call them. No, He came to call the unrighteous, the broken, the lonely, and the hurting to repentance. People knew that they were sinners and that would admit it. He came to rescue the lost, the lonely, and the despairing. Those that were mired down and stuck in sin, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't get out of it. He doesn't want to have to judge someone and keep them out of heaven. No, people are made in the image of God. He loves people. He waits patiently throughout their lives for them to turn to Him. It's only after they refuse His love and forgiveness throughout their lives that He has to judge them for their sins. If He didn't judge sin, He wouldn't be a just God. And there's no judgment for sin, then how can God remove sin from creation and establish His kingdom? and establish His kingdom where sorrow and death and heartache no longer exist, you see? He's got to judge sin to get it out of creation, and so He can't wait forever. But all along, while He waits for people to turn to Him, He desires to show them His mercy, to show His kindness to that person that's in need, to show them what He's really like. They probably have their own thoughts about what God is like. So many people view him as the big guy in the sky that's going to step on you like a bug when you do anything wrong. They don't understand the heart of God, that God has a heart of love. In fact, the Bible even says that God is love. And whoever loves is born of God and knows God. Now we're talking about the kind of love that God has, unconditional, forgiving love. 
That's what our verse today is talking about. This verse today gives us insight into the heart of God and His desire to be merciful. These verses also give us an unpleasant look into the hearts of some of the men in these verses who have long since forgotten about mercy in life. They've turned their religion into a way to have power and authority and influence over other people. But now their self-imagined authority and importance are being revealed as nothing more than just petty politics. Sounds like today's news, doesn't it? Let's look at John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning He came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to Him. And He sat down and began to teach them. Now I want you to understand something here. The temple was a big place. The temple was not just a location that some of the people in the city went to. To the Jewish people, the temple was the center of life. In the tabernacle in the wilderness that Moses and all the other people back then that were wandering in the wilderness that they, that they had to uh, construct, it turns out all the tribes were around that tabernacle. They were set on the east, the west, the north, and the south, and every one of the entryways to their tents were facing the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the Lord, which was the forerunner of the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. It was the center of their life. That's what I'm saying. And so when Jesus came to the temple and began to teach the people, I want you to get the impression and the feel for Jewish culture and Jewish life. The temple was a center of life. And so when he was teaching them there, he was teaching people from all over Jerusalem who came from all over to see this magnificent temple. And it was part of life. Even the stores where they bought their food and all of these things were situated around the sides of the temple to where people would come toward the temple and everything that they had to buy or acquire, everything that they had to do for business, everything that they had to do with Judaism was all centered around the temple. And now Jesus comes and He sits there and He begins to teach the people. Then it continues to say that in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious Jews, brought a woman they claimed had been caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court where Jesus was, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? In verse 6, it says they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. You see, it's politics. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. They thought, well, maybe he didn't hear us. So they persisted in asking him, and he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And then he stooped down to the ground again and began writing more things on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out and leave him from the oldest one to the youngest. And the woman, 
by herself was left alone in the midst with Jesus at that time in the court. Then straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I want to talk to you about these verses. People, as you've seen, can be so unforgiving and insensitive. They never think much about how they themselves have been forgiven. If they did, they would think better about forgiving others. Some other people are somewhat forgiving, but only reluctantly, as sometimes they think you have to earn their forgiveness. If you do something wrong, they think that you have to do all of these things and humble yourself and do all of these things to show how sorry you are, and then, and only then, will they forgive you. In other words, they think that forgiveness is something that you have to pay for in time or in money or some other kind of act of repentance. Then there's the type of person that feels like, well, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What you did to me, I'll do to you. And after I've done it to you and paid you back, then we can start again. But until then, you've got to pay the debt before I'll forgive you. And then other people are really forgiving. They've seen the other side. They know what it's like to mess up, to regret it, and to receive God's forgiveness. But God is different even than all of these. He forgives simply because He loves to show mercy. His heart is a heart of mercy. The Bible says in the book of Psalms several times, it says, God, you are good and your mercy endures forever. He loves to forgive. He loves to take the heavy burden of sin off of the back of one of who has been broken under its crushing weight. When God became a man to be our Savior, the Messiah, He was eager to forgive. That's the way we should be. We should have hearts that think like our Heavenly Father. We should have the same values in here that He has in His heart. We should delight in the same things that He delights in. So we should look for opportunities to forgive just like He does. When you show mercy like your Heavenly Father shows mercy, you're making what we call the mercy difference in someone's life. The woman in the scripture that we read about today was caught in adultery, in the very act. Now at that time, the law said that any woman guilty of adultery was to be stoned. And now here she was, brought by all the religious leaders who claimed that they were the ones who kept the law and that she was surrounded by them. And the situation didn't look good for her. There was no doubt she was guilty. Even in her own mind, she couldn't deny it. She had made a mistake, a bad choice. But it looked like it was a fatal mistake. It looked like there was no way out, and today she was going to lose her life in a most horrible way of being stoned. She was surrounded by men who had convinced each other that they were all righteous. But the common people who didn't know the law 
they weren't as righteous as the Pharisees were. That's how they thought of them. The Pharisees thought they were the experts at the law, and they could look at other people's faults and other people's sins in disdain for those other people. They didn't spend too much time looking in the mirror. They didn't look at their own shortcomings. They viewed themselves as the judges of other people. See where I'm going with this? But even in all those circumstances, the woman herself was not really the focus of what was happening here today. No, the Pharisees didn't care at all about the woman. She was just an expendable pawn in their political game. They were out to get Jesus. They wanted to trap him in his words. They'd set the trap and the circumstances that that poor woman was going through was not their concern at all. She was only the bait in the trap so that Jesus would be caught in their trap. So here they come. They take the woman past everyone along the way that might be watching. They humiliate her. They bring her through the city in front of everybody. They set her right there in the center in front of Jesus in the most public place in all of the city. Then they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Then they said that Moses in the law commanded that we should stone such a person. Then what do you think, Jesus? Now notice when these Pharisees came to Jesus, they called him teacher. They didn't really have any respect for him. They viewed themselves as the real teachers, and they wanted to teach him a lesson. They were jealous of Jesus because so many of the people in the city and throughout Israel were coming to him. Great multitudes would come just to hear him talk. And they would travel from all over Israel. They had seen and heard of the miracles. Just to hear him speak and to see God do these great mighty miracles with Jesus. That right there should have given the Pharisees pause to consider who Jesus really was and whether he really was sent by God because nobody could do the miracles that he was doing except that God was with him. But these religious leaders were so blinded by their own egos, by their own jealousy of Jesus, that they weren't interested in anything else except for trapping him in his words, to trap him in his answer, so they could accuse him before the people for teaching against the law of Moses. They were trying to turn the people against Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And they did all of this in the most public of places, the temple courtyard, the center of life for all the Jews. They wanted to inflict the maximum amount of humiliation upon Jesus. They didn't care at all about the crushing public humiliation that would fall on that poor, broken, and crying woman. There was no reason to bring the woman along, really, why humiliate her in public like that? They could have left her back in captivity with guards watching her and simply brought her case to Jesus and spoken to him about it. But no, she was a prop. She was an expendable pawn. All they could think about was themselves and their soon-to-be-enjoyed political victory. Now, I want to talk to you about what really happened there. We read the story, but let's sort of look at it Place yourself in that situation. They came to Jesus. They asked the question, 
They said, now this woman was caught in adultery. Moses says that she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? You could almost see these Pharisees as soon as that question was asked. What do you say, Jesus? They're looking around with a kind of a smirk and a smile at each other saying, we got him now. The chess game is over. Checkmate. What do you say, Jesus? Then Jesus stooped down to the ground and started writing something. I'm sure that as they saw him do this, they thought, well, that's the confirmation that we have him. He's speechless. He doesn't have anything to say. He can't say anything. Either way, he's going to be perceived to be against the law of Moses. He stooped down and started writing. Now, we really don't know what he was writing, but there's been a lot of conjecture by scholars that think that he was writing the Aramaic, the Hebrew, that would identify the sins of each of the Pharisees there. Each of those men, he might have looked up at them, turned and written the sin in his life. Pride. Turned and written the sin of here. Lust for a woman. Turned and written a sin for this man over here, saying like, this man is even an adulterer himself and looked up at him. And as he was doing this, he raised up and then he said, okay, I'll tell you what. Let the one who is among you who has no sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now you have to understand the law. The law of Moses said that the witness had to be the first one to throw the stone. But what happened when Jesus said this was they all began to walk away and just leave it all alone and leave the woman and Jesus right there all alone. They walked away because basically their hearts convicted them. They thought, well, wait a minute. I have sinned. And here I am, I'm about to stone this woman to death for her sin, and I have sinned too. I can't throw that first stone. And it says they begin to walk away one at a time, starting with the oldest and going down to the youngest. The oldest men would have been a little wiser. They would have thought, listen, I've lived a long life. What he just said makes sense. I have a lot of sin in my life. Maybe some of the younger guys in their zeal, they were thinking like, well, I, I, I've had some sin in my life, but you know, they haven't had the sin that all of the older guys had because they had lived longer, you see. And so the older guys are looking at this and they said, no, I can't do this. And they turned around and left and they walked away. Then the next oldest, then the next oldest, then the younger people started walking away until all of them had gone. The other problem was that they realized that they had forgotten what the law said. Either that or they never studied what the law said. That's the more likely scenario because the law had said that the first one to cast a stone had to be the one who witnessed it. And by the way, they couldn't even accuse, accuse a woman for adultery unless there were at least two witnesses. Two witnesses. Now here's the deal. The Pharisees brought this woman through public humiliation 
practically dragging her all through the city and putting her down in front of all the people Jesus was teaching and Jesus himself and put her down there and put her down. I mean, put her down. She was lower than everybody else. She was probably in chains. She was probably bound and they caused her, pushed her down and, and there she was. And yet, where's the man who was caught in adultery if she was caught in adultery? What about him? Why wasn't he brought? And where's the witnesses to this as the law of Moses prescribed? The two witnesses. So as Jesus said this, they realized that, well, they all have sin in their life. They can't throw the first stone. And they don't even know enough about the law to bring the witnesses with them that would be the only people that could start throwing the stones. And then finally, they didn't even think about bringing the guy who was also caught in adultery. They weren't thinking too clearly, these experts of the law. And when him saying what he said, they were humiliated through just his words. I find it fascinating that they just knew that they could trap him because of his words. But it turns out it wasn't physical force that sent them fleeing. It was his words that sent them away. And he never had to lift a finger. This is the power of God. To see exactly what is in the heart. To speak to the heart. The one who says, I don't have any sin, is only fooling himself. God has the complete record. The Pharisees themselves had neglected the law that they claimed to be experts in just to score petty political points against Jesus. It's amazing the wisdom of God. He didn't stoop down to the ground and write on the ground because he couldn't think of what to say. No, he stooped down to the ground and wrote on the ground showing them what their own faults were. And then they all left one at a time. Now, Jesus had spoken exactly the right words, words that had pierced their hearts, convicted them of their own sins. These accusers had left in shame, and now only the woman was left to face Jesus. To face Jesus, the man from God, the God-man, the holy, righteous, and pure Son of God. She must have been worried. She didn't know what he would say. She must have wondered what Jesus was going to do. Here was the man who had outmaneuvered all of those so-called experts in the law. Jesus certainly knew the law. He is the Word of God made flesh. He knew about the punishment. He knew that she could be worthy of stoning and death. What would Jesus do? Then from the position that he had lowered himself to, remember, he lowered himself down. The interesting thing about that to me, if I could pause for a little bit, is that he left all of them who were standing around her in judgment, and he stooped down to her level, to where he could look at her, to where she could see him. Jesus cares for the broken. He cares for the outcast. He cares for the downtrodden. 
He cares for the sinners who need help with their sin, who need his forgiveness and his mercy and his love. His, love. his mercy makes the difference in a sinner's life. His mercy gives them new life and gives them everlasting life and gives them life abundantly. He stooped down to connect with her, to look her in the eye and to look in her eyes with eyes of God's love, showing her that he did not want to kill her. It's amazing to me the love of God. And then after all of her wondering about what Jesus would say, about what he would do, she heard him say, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And still wondering what he would do, she answered, No man, Lord. That brief second must have seemed like an eternity. Then he said to her, Then neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. I don't condemn you either. Go your way and don't sin more. Now consider this. Mere seconds earlier, that same woman was condemned to death by stoning a horrific way to die. Where people in their religious zeal would throw these rocks without remorse or regret as hard as they could. Full grown men heaving these large stones at this woman to try to hit her in the head, do the most damage that they could. And now, seconds later, she's being set free to return to life. Nobody trying to chase her, no one trying to arrest her, nobody trying to kill her. Imagine the gratitude in her heart. Try to imagine how thankful she must have been. When she had said, no one, Lord, she called him Lord, and now all was forgiven. It was the mercy difference that captured her heart that day. Now she had a second chance. She had a new life, pulled back from the brink of death and given new life from the hand of God. Now she was a child of God, touched by the mercy of God. The mercy had made the difference. It was the mercy difference in her life. You see, God is the God of second chances and third chances, and so on and so on. As long as there is breath in your body, as long as your heart is beating, He stands ready, willing, and able to rescue you, to save you, and to bring you safely into His kingdom. His name, in fact, in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua means the rescue of God. Yeshua is actually two parts. Yeshua, our rescue, and then Yah at the end is short for Yahweh the rescue of God, the salvation of God. He stands ready to rescue you. If you don't know Him today, you can know Him by calling out to Him and saying you believe on Him as Lord and the Messiah, and He will rescue you and give you new life, give you everlasting life, and you will know that you are going to heaven at the end of this life on earth. His name, Yeshua. God saves, God rescues. God had seen the plight of this broken woman and he had compassion on her. That compassion was the turning point for her 
from death to life. It was the mercy difference. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Get this, because love will cover a multitude of sins. That's amazing. Love covers sins. It's the mercy difference. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 and 5 confirms this mercy difference because it says love is patient, love is kind, but love keeps no record of wrongs done. Did you hear that? Love keeps no record of wrongs done. That's the difference. God's love doesn't keep the record. That's the heart of God, the mercy difference. Remember this, in life, you're not on a mission to live for only yourself. You're not on a mission to judge other people. You're on a mercy mission to bring the love of God and His forgiveness to the hopeless and the lost. So while other people go through life trying to tear others down to make themselves look big and good, you be different. While others put a target on the back of anyone try who makes a mistake, you be different. Remember how much you've been forgiven by God. Then listen for what God will have you do to help that other person who's before you. For a little while longer, we live in an evil world, a world that is against God. No doubt you've noticed that. It's getting worse and worse all the time. And of course, the light is threatening the darkness. And the light is going to dissolve that darkness away because it is the real power. It is the power of light that chases the darkness away. They're not equal in power, darkness and light. Light is hope, darkness despair. Light meets darkness, what? Light wins every time, light wins. It's amazing what the love and the light of God can do. When Jesus walked the earth, he said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Are you following him? Do you know him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? He can be. You can be a child of God. If you already know the Lord, then imitate your heavenly Father. As he acts justly, you act justly. As he shows mercy, you show mercy. As He forgives, you forgive. Don't view yourself as a judge, but rather as a physician sent to heal the sick and bring healing. You weren't sent to tear down and destroy lives, but to build up and to heal and restore lives. Instead of looking for opportunities to rebuke other people, why don't you look for opportunities to show God's mercy and love for other people? Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So go forth. Don't avoid the lost. Seek the lost. Let your light shine. Just shine. Jesus said it. He's the light of the world. Follow Him and let your light shine. Don't be judgmental of others. Look inside your own heart and remember your yearning for mercy before you came to the Lord, when you were faced with your own shortcomings. Instead of trying to find the faults of others, 
spend your time instead looking at the Lord. Then in the light of His perfection, set your heart to correct your own course and the sins of your own life. When you are a follower of the one called the light of the world, it's not fitting to go around casting darkness and throwing stones and accusations and shame on others. No, instead, you be a light. Let your light shine into the darkness. Let the light of God shine out from you to give hope, to give mercy, to give forgiveness. You've been forgiven much, love much in return. Blessed are the merciful, it says in Matthew 5, for they shall receive mercy. Don't beat others down, lift them up. Humble yourself. Speak to others as one who is a sinner saved by grace. Don't talk down to them, talk with them. Don't condemn them, share with them the grace that takes condemnation away. Love as you have been loved, forgive as you have been forgiven. Show mercy as you have received mercy. That is the mercy difference. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord if you've not believed on Him. We want to give you an opportunity to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save you from judgment. Just pray something like this. God, I do want to know You. I do want to have real peace in life. I do believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. A seed is planted. Over time, you're going to notice the changes that He's making in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him and His Word. Talk to him every day in prayer. He's going to do amazing things in your life. 